When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Sean Baker, and I'm the director of Tangerine and the Florida Project, and you are listening to Film Spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Well, you used to really be scared here. Johnny. You're still afraid. Stop it now, I mean it. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. No, seriously, Barbara, they're really coming to get you. You too, Johnny. Yeah, Johnny, show some respect for the dead. Clip there from George Romero's zombie classic Night of the Living Dead, a film, Adam, we just hadn't seen in a long time. And with Romero's passing earlier this year and the movie approaching its 50th anniversary, Halloween weekend seemed like the right time for a revisit. We've got a Sacred Cow review of Night of the Living Dead, plus the top five horror debuts. That and more. They're coming for you, Joshua. Adam! Ahead on Film Spotting. This episode is presented by Film Spotting listeners, including all of our monthly subscribers and Silver Club donor David W. from Parts Unknown and Ben J. in Moscow, Idaho, who says a buck a show until next year. Thank you, Ben, David, and everyone who supports the show. We now want to do a little bit of the supporting. A few shows ago, we gave a shout out to Scott in Western Kansas for another platinum level donation. This is something he has done each of the last four years. With one of those donations, Josh, he requested that we give some portion of the funds to a film student, like a scholarship, basically. And we have always vowed we would do this. We love the idea. As a former film student myself, I know how much this money can help in trying to finish your projects and your studies. But we just kind of ran into that logistical question. Do we open it up nationally to all film students or just local film schools in Chicago or just one of them? And basically, we couldn't answer those questions and we just didn't move forward. But it's always been in the back of my mind. I always knew we were going to do something with Scott's money and some of our own. And then I heard Kevin Smith on one of his podcasts last week mention this organization, and I knew it was where our money should go, Women in Film. Yeah, Women in Film is based out of L.A., and the organization advocates for and advances the careers of women who are working in the screen industries. So the group's goal is to achieve parity and transform culture. If that's going to happen, we're going to need organizations like Women in Film doing some of this good work. Absolutely. So we made a $500 donation. It's something we're going to do annually in the name of the show. And if you want to learn more and possibly donate or get involved in some way, you can do that at womeninfilm.org. That's womeninfilm.org. Your support helps Women in Film fund vital programming, including scholarships, mentoring, and grants. We pulled the Halloween switcheroo on our listeners, Josh. This was supposed to be our Suburbicon show. We were going Suburbicon? to review. Yes. What's Suburbicon? George Clooney's new one, script co-written by the Cone Brothers oh, with yeah. Matt Damon, Julianne oh, yeah, Moore, yeah, yeah. Oscar Isaac, great cast. 
But we were ambivalent, and that probably showed a little bit in last week's show when we were teasing a potential Suburbicon episode. And we decided to let the film spotting Twitterverse decide the fate of this episode. It's a choose-your-own-adventure, if you will. We gave you the choice of Suburbicon, a show built around that movie, or a Halloween-inspired Sacred Cow review instead, or maybe even a blind spotting. We hadn't really decided, and listeners overwhelmingly went with the Sacred Cow pick. Our apologies to Mr. Clooney. After some debate and discussion, we went with 1968's Night of the Living Dead. I think the rare good idea by me. It was a good idea. It was As one you said, I hadn't, we hadn't seen it in a long time. I threw out a few other options on Twitter, and yeah, makes total sense mm-hmm. with Romero's passing, something maybe we wished we had been able to do earlier in the year. This is a great chance. Well, then, of course, we had to discuss what top five we would do tying in with that. Would it be zombie movies? Would it be zombie moments? Maybe something along the lines of black and white horror. These are all top fives that I'm certainly not qualified to weigh in on. That's never really stopped us before. And I'm probably not qualified to weigh in on the topic we did settle on, but we're going to do it nevertheless. Top five horror debuts. So these are horror directing debuts. Right. Just like First Night of the Living Dead. That happened to be in the horror genre. We will get to that here in a bit. If you're wondering how common it is to make a memorable debut with a horror movie, how about just this year, Jordan Peele's Get Out and our Golden Brick nominee, Raw from director Julia Ducourneau. And you can look at our current poll question. We asked you to choose the best horror film of the past decade. We'll get to those options and the results in the next segment of the show. Six of those 10 choices were directing debuts. We'll see if some of them made our top fives. Again, all that later in the show. But first, zombies were a thing before 1968. But George Romero's vision of them in Night of the Living Dead? Well, after that, the movies would never be the same again. Welcome to a night of total terror. (laughs) Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Often for these sacred cow reviews, Adam, we try to imagine what it might have been like to see the movie at hand upon its initial release, to experience it as first audiences did. For 1968's Night of the Living Dead, George Romero's low-budget indie debut feature about a group of squabbling victims holed up in a Pennsylvania farmhouse trying to ward off a crowd of zombies, I want to tweak that thought experiment a bit. What would it have been like to watch Night of the Living Dead not only before its reputation as a horror landmark was set, but without any sense of what a zombie was, particularly at the movies? Keep in mind during the film's opening scene, the brother and sister who are visiting their father's grave are attacked by a single man, a lunatic, it seems, who then pursues the sister, played by Judith O'Day, to the farmhouse. It struck me watching Night of the Living Dead this time that initial audiences might have just thought of him as a lone maniac, sure a stiff, slow-moving one, but still a single threat. As I tried to forget what I knew about zombies while the story continued, it slowly dawned on me what an insidiously shocking, deeply horrifying experience Night of the Living Dead must have been, and maybe still is. Does the movie still hold a certain power for you, Adam, or is this simply considered a classic because it set the zombie template? 
And regarding my thought experiment, what do you think it would have been like to first encounter a zombie through Night of the Living Dead? Hmm. It definitely still holds a lot of power, and I love that thought experiment. I happen to actually just randomly see that challenge that you posed for yourself on Letterboxd a couple hours before I sat down to watch the movie. So I gave myself that challenge, too. I tried to watch it with that in mind, and I basically discovered that it's impossible (laughs) to watch this film without the knowledge, without the perspective of having seen 20 to 30 years, in our case, of of zombie movies, right? right? It's really difficult. You touched on it. The moment Barbara and Johnny get attacked in really kind of the second scene of the film— I'm thinking instinctively, don't get bitten. Why aren't you protecting yourself better? (laughs) Don't you know what's going to happen to you? It's not just that they might be there to kill them. I'm thinking about how they should be protecting themselves very specifically. And later in the film, and I'm sure we can get to a lot of these examples, the one that really hit home for me was a scene involving the daughter, Karen, who we discover early in the film when our main character, Ben, discovers this group of people, this family and this other couple that are holed up in the basement, this daughter Karen has been injured. That's all we really know at first. We come to discover later, no, she's actually been bitten. I had to think about the fact that these people, certainly these characters wouldn't be aware, but we in 1968 wouldn't be aware ahead of the fact that she's definitely going to turn into a flesh-eating zombie as well. We'd have sympathy for her. Yes. Right? Right. So that was fascinating for me. We definitely wouldn't know, at least until the news brings it up. I think there's a point when the newscast, the TV reporters, and they have an expert on, and they bring up the idea that if you've been infected, that might go badly. But until then, we just assume that she's injured. And so we have a completely different reaction when we see her finally transform, and we have to forget all that accumulated knowledge. Now, as you pointed out, earlier, this is a case where we have seen other zombies in movies before this time, and I'm not an expert on Hollywood sci-fi movies, and there are elements of that at work here, or horror movies, B-grade or otherwise, but you don't have to be an expert to see the influence of a lot of different films at play here. There's one decidedly non-Hollywood film that I'll probably get to at some point as well. But one of the main pleasures of watching this film is definitely seeing a genre, or I suppose, if you will, a subgenre, being born right in front of our eyes. There is something mesmerizing about that. And my question for you, Josh, was going to be really why this movie still resonates with audiences. And why did a movie that at the time was made for, according to the numbers I saw, $114,000 and then made something like $12 million domestically, and here we are 50 years later still talking about this movie, why did it resonate then so strongly with people? And I know we'll get to that, but first I want to hear your answer to your own challenge. How did it go for you? Yeah, well, they're related, mm-hmm. actually, because I think that I thought about asking that too. You know, why does this thing last? Because it has a lot to overcome. It has some really bad performances. I think we'll get to one that I think is really strong. It has that threadbare budget, which you definitely sense Mm -hmm. in certain scenes as much as it's also effective in other scenes. So there were some hurdles to jump for this thing to land so firmly in the movie going consciousness. I think it has to do a lot with the shattering nature of those first time shocks Mm -hmm. and the reverberations that they had in the culture that 
cemented the legend. And that way, even when we go back to see it, you're experiencing what you just described, Mm -hmm. this birth. And that's what becomes exciting. So appropriately, it has a couple different lives that this movie has lived and they all work in their own way. Yeah, for me, trying to put on this lens I'll talk about what I guess I would call first-time shocks, things that are different than the scares that I think have lasted across the years. Mm -hmm. Uh, A first-time shock for me was when we suddenly see more than the first attacker because, again, I was thinking this is like a monster movie and there's one guy we got to worry about. And Romero plays it so Subtly, yeah. it's just a shot of the yard and there's maybe four people right, there's a few who more. are kind of notably walking in the same way. Yep. And, and right there, you're like, holy crap. What the care? Like, yeah. what? There's more of them. What is now the what scope of this? Do? What's the scope, mm-hmm. right? And I do like how the movie delicately balances over explaining with being overly naive. You know, there's a question there. I think O'Day asks, What is going on? Uh-huh. And Dwayne Jones, who plays Ben, becomes pretty much the main character, doesn't really offer any sort of explanation. He doesn't, he doesn't know either. So we're confused along with them. So there's that moment. And then it's the use of the radio, as you mm-hmm. discussed. And later, there's a television. I think it's very clever how the film does that. You could say maybe this is a lazy device, but man, did it amp up the horror for me because we're so desperate for information. Mm-hmm. We're going to latch on to anything we get. That's and it, and yeah. what do we get? Something we couldn't have even imagined. There's one word that's used on that radio broadcast, devoured. Consistent reports from witnesses to the effect that people who acted as though they were kind of trance were killing and eating their victims prompted authorities to examine the bodies of some of the victims. Medical authorities in Cumberland have concluded that in all cases, the killers are eating the flesh of the people they murdered. Repeating this latest bulletin just received moments ago from Cumberland, Maryland, civil defense authorities have told newsmen that murder victims show evidence of having been partially devoured by their murderers. Medical examination of victims' bodies shows conclusively that the killers are eating the flesh of the people they kill. And when you hear devoured, it's scarier than anything Romero could have shown, even though he goes on to show a lot more. I think this is related to that story Ben tells Mm -hmm. about his first encounter with zombies at the diner. His description is more terrifying than anything we could have seen. So there's a storytelling device in this film that's very effective where it lets our imaginations do a lot of the work for us. And I think there's another phrase that comes later, unburied dead. You know, this this is, again, mm-hmm. the first time our minds are even right. opening up to this possibility. Yeah, I'm with you completely on the device, I suppose, of the radio and the TV. There's something about it here that does not feel lazy at all. It's always adding. It's always creating more dread in our minds and giving us new information. So it doesn't just feel like a lazy sort of exposition device at all. It's really crucial to everything that's happening here. I think it also, and I did not think this through, so I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but there's something fundamental we will talk about that this movie is dealing with in terms of the sense of institutions and things that you just hold sacred and fundamental crumbling. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose almost as a juxtaposition to that, there's something comforting about this institution of the media yeah. actually actually being there in this communication tool, whether it's the radio or TV, we're going to be on. We're going to stay on through this and whole the thing. We're going to help onto you. onto it like it's yes. water, right? Yeah. Like it's life-giving. But watching it through that lens of someone who 
would be watching this for the first time in 1968, you think about the year and the timing of this movie, one of the most volatile years in U.S. history. And this is something this year in particular, Josh, is something I think about a lot whenever I talk to people now about our current political state and how fractured and divided we are in America today. We all talk about how this is all uncharted territory. And and it probably is. There are probably justifiably a lot of reasons why we all there say that. There are distinctions, sure. There are distinctions. Good word. But at the same time, I do genuinely wonder, as I think back to 1968 and I think about some of these events that occurred, how much different would it really feel? How much different does it feel to people who were our age, roughly, or teenagers and going through the late 1960s in America? You have obvious events that come to mind right away around this time, the Tet Offensive in 68. Martin Luther King assassinated, RFK assassinated. There are civil rights and anti-war protests breaking out all over the country, including the Democratic National Convention here in Chicago in that year. But you also have, and this is where the sci-fi element is tapped into, you also have Apollo 8, the first manned spacecraft to orbit the moon, the first time people traveled to the quote-unquote dark side of the moon, the first images of that side of the moon sent back to people on Earth. And then, man, you talk about the relevancy and how this movie still resonates. The more things change, the more they stay the same. In January, I didn't have to do much Google searching at all on this, Josh. In January of 1968, North Korea captured a U.S. surveillance vessel and took the crew members hostage, 82 of them. So there was this, this standoff, this diplomatic standoff with North Korea. And then John Carlos and Tommy Smith at the Mexico City Olympics raising their fists in the Black Power salute protesting segregation and racism in the United States and also in South Africa. So as I touched on, there's this sense in 1968 that I think had to be quite powerful and quite vivid for anyone going into the theater to watch this film, that the fabric of American life had been turned completely upside down. The world as they thought they knew it no longer made any sense. And along comes Romero and his co-writer here, John Russo, not with traditional movie monsters at all, not monsters that you can write off as pure fantasy. They're just people. They are people like us. We could be them. And even that opening that we played at the beginning of the show, that they're coming to get you, it's a nod to those old monster movies, being scared of that kind of fantastic monster, that ghoul chasing you. And he's saying, I think, in a kind of clever wink to us, I'm going to break that down and subvert that completely. But he does take something that should be inscrutable, you can't debate this. When we die, we die. Whether you, you have notions of the afterlife or not, your body is buried, and that's it with your body. And then Romero asks, well, what if that's no longer true? And not only that, they're feasting on the living. So yeah, it's humanity, humanity in is now movie. as inhuman as it can possibly be. And I think it was just tapping in to everything that was in the popular culture at the time. Since convening this conference of the presidential cabinet, the FBI... Joint Chiefs of Staff, the CIA, has not produced any public information. Why are space experts being consulted about an earthbound emergency? So far, all the betting on the answer to that question centers on the recent Explorer satellite shot to Venus. That satellite, you'll recall, started back to Earth, but never got here. That's the space vehicle which orbited Venus and then was purposely destroyed by NASA when scientists discovered it was carrying a mysterious high-level radiation with it. Could that radiation be somehow responsible for the wholesale murders we're now suffering? Yeah, so that plate of what people are dealing with in 68 is piled high, and here comes a movie that piles more on top of it relentlessly, 
and then also pokes. This is where the film's subversive. Like mm-hmm. it's poking all of those fears. Yes. I always forget that there is that sci-fi element where there's a news report about is Completely. it a satellite or is it you know and yeah just, radiation yeah, from a Venus probe. Maybe this is why this is happening, uh, and and that slips my mind that that's yeah, thrown I in want to there. Talk about but that it a little is bit more. another way that the movie is poking at the anxiety mm-hmm. of the era and the racial dynamics. I mean, talk about provoking. Yeah. Right away, he traps this young, defenseless white woman I know. in a home with a stronger black man. Yes. And I would say he doesn't insinuate in a way for me that's, you know, racially insensitive, mm-hmm. but he lets it sit there. And Stoke, again, as irrational as they might be, fears that some people had at the time. Yeah. You mentioned uh, the letterbox log that I did for this, and I got an interesting comment. This has to do with the very ending, so there will be a spoiler here. You might want to skip ahead if you really want to experience this for the first time without knowing anything. But that ending where Ben, played by Dwayne Jones, the lone survivor of this mm-hmm. attack on the house seems like he's going to make it it's morning here comes the militia that's going through the countryside taking out all the zombies with shots to the head they shoot and kill him before they even take mm-hmm. a chance to see really they just see movement in the house and shoot him so again it's not specifically racially exploitative sure where these men make a conscious decision to shoot him because he's black so i i like the restraint if you could call that Romero has, but it says everything it needs to say. And this is what Robbie Newman commented on Letterboxd. Interestingly enough, while the whole group is doomed, it takes a supernatural force to kill the white characters. It only takes a group of white men with guns and permission to use them however they see fit to kill Ben. Yeah. And again, the more things change. That's it. And I'm watching this knowing that happened, but not remembering Exactly how it I didn't plays remember out it until about five minutes staged, before. Really? Yeah. yeah. I, I remember it ended that way, but oh, is it a punch in it the gut? It was still a gut punch. And then the use of still frame photos I, I, for I the final credits. I guess it's just before the credits, but yeah. instead of we see his body being carried out, I think are there like meat hooks? That they're yeah. using. Yes. And yeah. it's a series of still photos right. that kind of – I haven't wrapped my mind exactly around what they do except in a way reaffirm a sense of institution. Yeah. Um, going back to what you were talking about, try to provide this clinical distance from it that just makes it more horrifying because here we know this was a, a live – heroic, essentially, guy who's been ironically murdered being treated like one of these undead and maybe even worse. Yeah. You talk about why this is a movie we still need to discuss and reckon with. I'm going to second everything you said. At one point in the movie, we get a field report from that TV newscast, and the reporter asks the sheriff, if I were surrounded by eight or ten of these things, would I stand a chance with them? And the sheriff says, well, there's no problem. If you have a gun, shoot him in the head. That's a sure way to kill him. If you don't, get yourself a club or a torch, beat him or burn him. They go up pretty easy. And there's something about that that really struck me where Romero doesn't go incredibly out of his way to make that sheriff seem like a huge redneck or anything. He's just being very matter of fact. And as it turns out, there's a part of us as viewers that have to be thankful that there's someone like the sheriff going around killing these zombies. But on another level, there is that almost glee. I, that's what it is. Right? Just the simplicity. Enough joy. It's just like, enough. what a great excuse this is to yes. get out here and have nothing restraining us. Yes. And we can shoot whatever we want. And you said Romero doesn't necessarily explicitly tell us that it 
does have something to do with his skin color that causes that moment at the end. But it's enough to suggest that if they see something that doesn't look like us, whatever the other is, then they have the right to kill it. And those end still photos are the most harrowing moments in the movie for me, even more than a young girl eating (laughs) the flesh of her parents. If Romero did mean it as just some kind of ironic comment that the lone survivor gets mistaken for a zombie and is shot when he's actually being rescued, then why would he deliberate on those end shots? And seeing those meat hooks go into his side, we don't actually see him enter, but we see that they're there. This posse is treating him like he's a piece of meat, literally. And They all strike a chord. We've seen photos like that from so many civil rights crimes in our country's past. And I think that Romero is definitely calling on our collective consciousness there. But it is so subtle up until that ending. And you touched on this as well. That racial angle really only comes directly to the fore at the end. But you can ask the question, how much are we as viewers supposed to be recognizing fear in Barbara at being saved? By a black man, Mm. because I was thinking of the movie Detroit and there are other references we could make here. But this is a movie from Catherine Bigelow we discussed earlier in the year. Remember the scene in that movie where I think it's Anthony Mackie is the military guy who's in a room and one of the young women, maybe it's both of them, are in his room when the cops show up, these kind of college age, late teen girls. And here we've got that blonde, blue eyed, typical quote-unquote, American girl, and she's in the house with this black man. As I said, I don't know that it's suggested or not because she's clearly descending into madness the way it is, but maybe it is even heightened more by her immediate reaction to seeing him as her rescuer. And then that posse outside, how are they going to react to that? What if they came upon that house, like in the movie Detroit, and saw both of them in that house alive? It doesn't really matter who he is as a character, whether he's educated, how accomplished he is. He could be seen as potentially a threat to her by these people, by many people in our country at that time and even now. And you have to ask as well, is that why the Henry character, the father who is constantly resisting him and at one point openly wants him dead, is that why he opposes him so constantly? We don't know. Romero doesn't force us to confront that moment to moment. But by the end of the film, you have to think about all these things. And what I like about that dynamic with Henry, the father, is there's actual physical segregation going on where he's claimed the basement and Ben is on the main floor. And also there's the joke of once it sinks in that Ben's the most competent and most powerful and smartest guy for this situation, right. then the segregation starts to crumble, right? Because, okay, we're going to put our lives ahead of our prejudices to a degree. Uh, and going back to the Ben and Barbara dynamic, how about that crazy moment I don't know what to make of where she's hysterical and slaps him and he punches and her he right punches back her. unconscious. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's kind of just left there for right. us to, to take in. There isn't much commentary on that um, as the movie goes on. Before we get too far away from uh, Ben, I want to return to that moment I talked about where Dwayne Jones is describing how he got to the house and how he fled from this diner where there was a gasoline truck explosion and he had to actually kill a number of these Mm -hmm. zombies. Why I think this is a really strong performance is mostly that moment because not only, again, does it sell us as a spooky story, gets us creeped out, But what you sense there is this regret that he felt about killing 
people mm-hmm. who he doesn't know what's going on. Right. They were going to kill him. So he killed them. And this is like you talk about the birth of a genre. This is one of the crucial seeds is that it gets exploited even further. There's a bit here with the daughter. Mm-hmm. But when our family turns on us, when loved ones turn and we have to make that decision, well, there's that early seed, mm-hmm. right? Because Ben is expressing that sorrow over what he's had to do. And you feel it from that point on in every brutal blow of the tire iron that he gives to these zombies, mm-hmm. which is, it's rough stuff. I mean, Romero, again, I, I don't think it verges into exploitation, but he definitely shows us what it takes for this guy to take care of one of these zombies. Well, and it's nasty. I hadn't thought of it until you said it, but that seems to me another potential Vietnam analogy for this movie as well. Think about how many of our soldiers went over to Vietnam and had to kill people that, as the saying goes, didn't do anything to them, didn't do anything to harm them or their family, and yet they did have to kill them. And they did so, many of them, with regret. I think we get other references there that are unmistakable. The shot of the posse at the end where we have the helicopter. There's a news helicopter, something flying over, and we see fields of what look like soldiers Mm -hmm. walking with guns. And when they watch the TV and they're constantly listening to the radio for reports of casualties and all the latest developments and the zombies... I think you can make the case as well, among other things that they might be or represent. They are, in a way, the Viet Cong. They're this massive, mysterious, omnipresent threat to our soldiers, which is then mirrored here in the film. Another surprise for me with this film, I said I didn't remember that it ended the way it did. I didn't remember that it had the sci-fi element. I do want to talk about that a little bit more. But I forgot just how overly devoid of hope and cynical. Oh, yeah. It was. These characters never really develop a plan. I kept waiting for that to happen because we've seen it so many times. For them to find a way to survive, at least a few of them. This is a case where the movie, it just starts bad for all the survivors, all the victims. And then it just gets worse and, the and one worse and worse. escape attempt they make is laughably yes. comes undone. Yeah, it's horrible. And you mentioned the segregation. And we do have to note that Henry is willing to have Ben, the black man, come with him to the basement. In fact, he wants him to. But how interesting is it, Josh, in terms of Romero pulling out the rug from under us? We think we have sort of footing. We understand what's going on with this movie and who the good guys and the bad guys are. And you've said it. Ben is the most competent character in this movie. He's our hero. He's the one we side with. I don't know about you, but in that moment where they're debating whether they should be downstairs or be upstairs, there's a case on both sides, but I'm going to do whatever Ben Ben thinks. (laughs) I'm going to stick with Ben, right? (laughs) Well, but at the end of the film, what's borne out? Mr. Cooper, the annoying crazy guy, his plan really was vindicated. This isolationism, this notion that he just wants to be hidden away down in the basement, doors boarded up, That's what's going to keep us safe. Let's get out of this main room where we have all these entry points. We think he's the unhinged one and we're going to follow Ben. Well, guess what? That's how Ben survives. Right. So Mr. Cooper actually is the sane one by the end of the movie. Romero has that little twist as well. So we've been talking a lot about the thematic undercurrents and the resonance and the echoes. Let me talk about just what's terrifying on a level that I think also helps this movie to last over the years. And I think it's just the relentlessness. That's the word that always comes mm-hmm. to mind when I think of Night of the Living Dead. And it starts with that that first guy who just won't stop. The The moment where it clicked with me is when he picks up the – it's not really a boulder, but it's a pretty good-sized rock. 
and throws it at the car window mm-hmm. that Barbara has hidden in. You know, you would think this is the moment where he's going to give up or she's going to get away and he just continually pursues mm-hmm. her. And of course, that gets amplified as more people come, the hands through the windows. It just never stops. And I think that's part of the fatalism that right. you're talking about yes. as well, which totally. is absolutely key to to zombie movies going forward, most of them. Anyways, the commitment to gore... And again, I don't know how unique this would have been in 68. Maybe there are other low-budget horror films that were doing something similar. Mm -hmm. But once that young couple in that thwarted escape plan gets attacked, becomes a long dinner in close-up where everyone takes their item of choice and shows it to the camera before eating it. It, For some reason, it does not devolve into camp for me. No. Not and, those moments. And I don't know why, because it should, right? You you have, it gets so ridiculous at that point that uh, just in terms of insanity, where this movie has gone, deranged, that you would almost think you'd laugh in defense, but instead it's horrible. And I think a lot of it is the detail to the gore, mm-hmm. like the, the choice of actually showing you bones and gristle. Right. And it's awful. It's just awful. And then when the daughter does turn and is eating her father, and then the scene of her stabbing her mother, which is, I've mentioned how some of the filmmaking is maybe a little creaky as a low-budget debut. And this moment but, is. Well, I it's think— It's still harrowing, but— I th- See, for me, <laughs> it became almost abstract where he decides to use a shadow, a triangular mm-hmm. shadow instead of the knife, and there's an echoing effect going on with the screams. And as garish as some of those earlier attack moments were, they were still somewhat based in reality, I guess yeah. you could say. Yeah. Th- this scene, it, again, gets like absurdist in a way that's that's just especially creepy. No, that's a great point in terms of the filmmaking. I think I can't really extricate it from everything about that character, Helen, her demise at the end and the staging of that and the blocking. You want to talk about sort of schlocky. We get that element, certainly she in She doesn't try scenes. to escape too hard. No, in I fact, would, I'll she, say that. she doesn't just <laughs> not try to escape too hard. She basically is like, don't get me, zombies, right. yeah. here it's, while I throw myself at you. It's kind of Can I move my shoulder closer to you? And then even when her daughter <laughs> attacks her, she's completely helpless. And I know it's supposed to be a really jarring moment for that to be happening to her. But in general, I think we can say, you already touched on it, that women are not treated great in this movie. They're not the best characters, right? You have Barbara, who is in a stupor throughout the entire film. My favorite part might actually be when finally Ben gets through to her by saying something about, we're going to get out of here. And she goes, we're going to get out of here. She's she's like, ooh, I want to leave. <laughs> she actually says that, like, yes. ooh, I want to leave. Yeah, but she's of, otherwise, she's completely ineffectual. Then you have Helen, as I said, throwing herself at the zombies. And then there's the Judy. I like the Helen Judy. before that point, though. No, I did I do, too. Where well, she, compared to her husband. Uh, yeah, like she pushes back on her husband. Right, and yes, she, I'm yeah. with you there. That's true. And then you've got Judy, the other couple, the girlfriend there, who just smiles yeah. a lot, as we hear, and worries a lot yeah. and doesn't really add anything to the mix either. So maybe that is reflective more of the mindset of 1968. Unfortunately, that does come through. But going back to the sci-fi part of this film, that was another surprise for me. As I said, I did not remember that they actually explain the reanimation or at least provide a possible explanation. And at first I thought, well, I'm kind of disappointed yeah. that they do. That was my initial response because I was thinking that 
it's just this isolated regional experience. They're sort of cut off from the rest of the world. And that makes it potentially even more terrifying, even though it makes it more contained at the same time. But I thought, why do we need the explanation? And wouldn't it actually add to the subversiveness that we've talked about if it was just another element of chaos, of the unknown? We're living this horrific nightmare and we have no idea why. But I did come to realize that it's actually better. Someone could argue that just because we hear some officials, we see and hear some officials on TV talking about this probe and suggesting that might be the cause, this radiation, that doesn't necessarily mean it's true. But I think Romero has it there for a reason. He wants us to consider that there is probably a somewhat scientific explanation for what's going on here. But I think that it's there to certainly reflect kind of the psyche of the times. I talked about the Apollo mission. The moon landing is coming a year after the Cold War space race with the Soviet Union is certainly going on here. And the more important part of it, Josh, is that it then means that this is all, in a way, self-inflicted. It's actually more subversive, not less, that potentially our own global ambitions and our own secrets led to this whole nightmare. And I think that Romero in just suggesting that, as I said, adds to the overall subversiveness of the film and certainly adds to the the sense of paranoia and distrust of the government that yeah, viewers at the time would have had. That's what I was thinking, too. It also adds that element of conspiracy, right, mm-hmm. which is in the air as well at this time. Yeah. And, it, you know, it, it also nicely puts it in the horror tradition because that is the fatal flaw is this human hubris or these scientific overstepping Mm -hmm. of our bounds that does lead to horror catastrophe. So just a couple more quick thoughts. You mentioned the the threadbare budget here and how that sometimes does come through. We also see the resourcefulness with the budget at times. I think, and I could be reaching here a little bit, but how about the opening dialogue of the movie being about daylight savings time? Yeah. You just wonder if it's like, well, we really want to open on daytime and we need it to be daylight. Maybe we don't have any lights at this point. And I noticed that we want to transition well. into darkness. And then the fact that the movie focuses on notice that it's not just the dead. It's not the dead rising because the dead rising would just be bones. They couldn't reanimate in any way. It's the recently dead we hear in the newscast. Well, of course it is because how else are they going to handle all the makeup and the production design to reanimate the long dead? They need people who look like people, Josh. And you know what? That's that's clever. And it's a great use of the resources they did have. Also allows for that grisly segment where the mortician is describing all of this and saying what – you need to do now in case someone dies in the next few hours. The the era of funerals is over, people. He essentially so, says. So that's it, he's, Josh. He's like, you, just take that body in the street and, and burn, burn it. it. No, I love it. It's actually my favorite line in the film. As we talk about our institutions breaking down and values, what we think are normal values being questioned here. That line is my favorite line in the movie, and I may be getting it slightly wrong, but the scientist basically says something like, the bereaved will no longer be able to rely on the dubious yes. comfort <laughs> that a funeral that? provides. That's it. The scientist just openly mocking the notion of a funeral being this this stupid procedure, this ritual that grants anyone comfort. You've I got love it. You've got it right. I noticed that too. Yeah. Oh, well, it's I my mean, favorite line. Everyone's going through this and you had to throw that in there. But even if you think about it, you can find it in every part of the screenplay, this questioning of values, the opening dialogue, that opening scene where Johnny 
is bemoaning why they even have to go to the cemetery and drive so far to recognize their dead father and their mother doesn't even come with him. And he talks about, and I know that a lot of people talk about the theme of capitalism as it relates to zombies, certainly a huge part of Dawn of the Dead. That's what that film is all about. But he openly questions why we keep buying the same thing that then is just gone by the time we get here and we just keep buying the same thing over and over again. So he was already touching on that theme, whether explicitly consciously or not, at the very beginning of this film. I did want to also throw out another movie reference here that I do think is a great pairing with this movie. And I didn't know that going into this film, but I couldn't help but look at Judith O'Day and see shades of Catherine Deneuve from Roman Polanski's Repulsion. Mm. Looked it up, 1965, so I thought it was before Night of the Living Dead. Thought it might have been an influence, because that's definitely a film about a woman, just like Barbara, losing her mind, going madder and madder by the minute, stuck in an apartment, confined just like Barbara is here. And just like Polanski, Romero makes use of canted angles and shadows. And I think of one shot in particular when she first comes in the house and something about the way it's framed and the depth, there are dead animals that surprise her, but there's actually just ones she doesn't see on the wall behind her that almost feel like they're on top of her, attacking her. And it kind of gives us the sense of her overall state of mind. And if you Google repulsion, Images. Just Google it. You'll see images that come up that look like they were taken straight out of Night of the Living Dead. So I wondered if there was any connection. Search for Polanski Repulsion Night of the Living Dead and found an article. The first link that came up, Romero said he considers Repulsion to be the greatest horror movie of all time. There you go. So I'm not totally nuts. A great film to check out if you haven't already. And certainly if you haven't seen Night of the Living Dead already or haven't seen it in about 20 years, which was the case for me over 20 years. What about you, Josh? When was the last time you saw it? It had been more recently than that. And and I have seen this a couple of times, but I bet it's maybe been 10 years at least. Yeah. Well, you might be due for a revisit as well. Dawn of the Dead touched on there briefly. 1978, the sequel was the first movie in the second marathon that was ever done on this show. Sam, and me, 2005, we had our awards called the Haddonfields after John Carpenter's Halloween, and we discussed Dawn of the Dead. Now, I would never wish on anyone to go back to any of our shows, much less ones from 2005, but if you are curious what we said about that movie, then we'll link to it in the notes for the show at filmspotting.net. Night of the Living Dead is available on DVD, available to rent on most streaming platforms, and if you're lucky, playing at a midnight movie screening near you, maybe even this weekend, and Josh... Chicago area folks, we can count ourselves among the lucky ones. A special 4K restoration of Night of the Living Dead opens this weekend at the Music Box Theater. You can learn more about that at musicboxtheater.com. The film spotting poll is next. We'll reveal the movie that listeners chose as the best horror film of the last decade. Then we'll keep things creepy with our lists of the top five horror debuts. Stay with us. Josh, this is Andreas McGrail from Denmark. I've been listening to the podcast for 
I don't know, forever. But uh, finally, I'm calling you guys. And uh, that's because I'm from Denmark. And in Denmark, of course, is a Scandinavian country. We speak Danish. And when you're talking about the new title of the new Thor movie, I'm thinking you need some expert advice from Scandinavian people. So the Viking way of saying it would be Raunerok. Okay? No G, no hard G. It's more like a V. But Raunerok is the way we usually would pronounce it here. So thanks for a great podcast. And I'm looking forward to listening to your next one. Bye, guys. Thank you so much, Andreas. Now we know, and all of our listeners are going to pronounce it from here on out, I'm sure, the correct Viking way. <laughs> That's the only way you can say it. Raunerok. Exactly. It has to take that long to say <laughs> yes, it I think every it's, time. It's lengthy. That's key. Not just pronunciation, but the length of it. Oh, man. Why, why does Andrea sound so exhausted by listening to us for so many years? I, I guess I just answered my own question. Well, I mean, you heard how long it takes to pronounce a three-syllable word. Raunerok. He's really worn out. Thank you for sticking with us over the years there, Andreas, and correcting us, even if I think we're all going to stick with our terrible Americanized pronunciation of Thor Ragnarok. I don't think we'd settled on something. We've got a week. <laughs> That's yet. what we're going with. We've got a week. Yet. We do have a week to figure it out. The movie opens next weekend for directed by New Zealand's Taika Waititi. You should have nailed that, which you did. I think you did a nice job mimicking Andreas there. You're Scandinavian. It's in your blood. Yeah. So. Uh, Norwegian, not Danish, but yeah. I do believe I, I do believe Adam that is Scandinavian. <laughs> well, God knows we make geographical mistakes all the time here. Nordic? You want to Google it should real I quick. Said, I think I should have said Nordic. We did a marathon on yeah, those and movies. we called we should it Nordic. Know. Yeah, it's both. I don't think Andreas it's knows both. what he's talking Let's about. Let's move on. <laughs> well, we are going to talk about Thor next week on the show, though everything we say is subject to a last-minute change, but I think we're going to stick with this one, and we are going to share our top five. Are we really doing this top five? This is a yes. Sam and Josh joint that I need no. to get on board with. You first suggested this, but I, but I think it was like a, a preemptive strike suggestion. This Maybe first it was. came out of your mouth. Really? Superhero costumes. Check the record on oh, that. Oh, yes. Check the record. It, it was. You said something like, this is probably something, it was very dismissive, like Josh and Michael would do. <laughs> sniff, sniff. Superhero <laughs> costumes. Yeah. As if I wasn't going to immediately say, I love, love it. superhero costumes. Of course costumes. you did. <laughs> Let's do it. Well, help me out, guys. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, or leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. You can also send us an MP3 file. Don't overthink this one, Adam. Just take the week off. Have a little fun. Okay. Be light. You'll get through it. Okay. In case you didn't catch Massacre Theater on our last show, we're going to give you a quick taste of what you missed. This was part of our Noah Bombback show, our review of the Meyerowitz stories and our top five Bombback characters. Let's hear a little bit of it. Wow, was that Dad's freezer? Yeah. Can I say something? What? You don't have permission to take his property. That belongs to all of us. And use it for yourself as if it's yours. Jack agrees with me, right, Jack? So the feedback is streaming in on that, Josh. <laughs> and we heard from Kevin Harris in Moorpark, California, who you're going to hear a line from him that a lot of listeners have echoed, except I thought about this one. I overthought this one. Here's what... He said, for better or worse, Adam's blank impression is unmistakable. Mm -hmm. And at first I thought, 
I did really, a good job. He's really given me a compliment. My impression of that actor is unmistakable. And then I thought maybe what he's really saying is it's unmistakable that that's Adam's impression of that guy. I think it means that no one else would do right. this actor this way. I still think you're doing Mr. Monopoly when I hear who I've found. Mr. Monopoly Mono- talks? It, well. What version of Monopoly talked, did you grow up with? If he talked, this is what he would sound oh. like. He also has a name I've found since first thinking about this. It's, it's not it's, Mr. Monopoly? It's not Mr. Monopoly. It's Rich Uncle Pennybags. <laughs> you're lying. Which, I'm not lying. I mean, you're, you're I, completely I did a, I did a lying. .25 second Google search, and that's what I found. I think Mr. Monopoly is a better name, frankly. <laughs> Whatever he's called, you're doing him in that impression. Okay. Well, I've got another one for you. A listener wrote in today, got the guess wrong, was 100% sure that they had it right. Wrote like three paragraphs. We love it. About how they knew it had to be this movie. And, of course, they're wrong. They thought I was doing Adam Sandler's Little Nicky. Oh, man, <laughs> that's a deep, Which, deep cut. There are shades of little Nicky in yeah, my impression of I can blank s- actor. I can see that. Okay. Little Nicky crossed with rich <laughs> uncle penny bags. <laughs> Why would a rich uncle have penny bags? Right. Is what I spent a lot of time on this. This, this really ate away at my day. If you know what film we massacred there, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, October 30th. For that, the winners of Massacre Theater, they get their very own Film Spotting t-shirt. And in this case, they're going to get a brand new oh, yeah. Film Spotting t-shirt because we are very excited to announce that we have partnered with Tee Public. People have been asking for this for years. You really could only get them via Massacre Theater. We sold them for a little while on the website. We've sold them on occasion at live shows, but we've never just had a shop that was always up and running anytime someone wanted to order a Film Spotting t-shirt. And we're both big fans of the shirts, the designs, four different colors with that Film Spotting logo. Yes, we are talking about adding more pieces of merchandise, more products, but also more designs. We may even have a listener design contest at some point. For now, we're going with that basic F design that we love and that we use on our website and Every logo that you see of Film Spotting, if you want to purchase, just go to filmspotting.net slash shop, or you can find the shop link right at the top of the page. We're also moving some books, some Josh Larson movies or prayers there. You put the book on there? I did. Aww. Of course. So kind of you. Hey, the T-shirt I can approve of, having worn it, it meets my high standard <laughs> for promotional T-shirts. I'm very picky, and I did enjoy wearing this one. I think you'll like it. Soft, good fit. Um, yeah, this is a much better approach this online store then do you remember this was very early probably my fourth month on the show uh-huh. and you were selling t-shirts out of a box behind the popcorn stand at a drive-in theater yep. do you yep. remember we this? did that and i was like what have i gotten myself zombies into? we watched zombie land and <laughs> shawn of the dead it was we did the double it was feature. a halloween double feature yeah so i i thought oh this is interesting this is this is how, this is what this i've is signed on for we sell t-shirts here okay. pushing t-shirts taking in, cash in the dark it was like i thought maybe you were selling something else from that box too i couldn't yeah, quite see no. it. it it was just t-shirts in the old school film spotting parlance we were moving some cans uh-huh. however we had to do it josh <laughs> that's what we're in the business of so we are Excited to have these shirts available again, filmspotting.net slash shop. We go from buying t-shirts to just giving away movie passes. And we know, unfortunately, we've got this broad base of listeners around the world, and this really only applies to those that are here in the Chicagoland area. But oh my, we've got a bunch of interesting movies that are coming out in the next few weeks and a ton of free movie passes to give away. 
LBJ. This is with Woody Harrelson. I think the screening for this is October 30th. Mm-hmm. So coming up here quickly, if you're interested in that one, on November 1, there's a screening for Human Flow, a documentary directed by Ai Weiwei. Does that Very sound right? Very good. Or is he just, um, did you consult the film spotting pronunciation guy? Uh, yes, I did. No, I think he is the director okay. of the movie. There you go. And I'm really curious to see it. Human Flow, November 1st is that one. Yep. Also on November 1st is Darkest Hour. That one is going to be followed How by about a this? Gary Oldman Q&A. Gary Oldman's going to be in Chicago. So you just might want to check that one out. Answering your mindless questions from the audience. Yeah, they usually are mindless. <laughs> Richard Linklater, his new one, Last Flag Flying, the spiritual sequel, not to Dazed and Confused or Everybody Wants Some, but to the Hal Ashby film from the 70s, The Last Detail. That is screening November 6th. Wonder on November 7th, directed by Stephen Chbosky. Julia Roberts stars along with Mandy Patinkin and David Diggs, who my daughter Sophie worships because, of course, he is Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson from Hamilton, the original Broadway cast. It's an inspiring and heartwarming story that is based on a New York Times bestseller. And then The Square, November 8th, starring Elizabeth Moss and Dominic West. It's a story about an exhibit at a contemporary art museum that has unexpected results. And if that wasn't enough to entice you, Ruben Oslin, the director who gave us Force Majeure a few years back, one of the best films of the year it was released so we can't wait to see the square and many of those titles you heard if you want to see them for free and see them in advance of their release just go to filmspotting.net slash events to enter all i know is sometimes if there's too many white people i get nervous you know something that's not my experience not at all we get back into the horror talk with a clip from jordan peele's get out daniel kaluuya with betty gabriel in that movie it's one of the year's standout movies how did it fare against other horror films from the last decade several weeks back we asked you to make your pick for the best horror film since 2007 we gave you 10 options in chronological order they were paranormal activity Let the Right One In, The Orphanage, The Cabin in the Woods, The Conjuring, It Follows, The Babadook, The Witch, Get Out, and finally, the most recent, It, the Stephen King adaptation that is now like the highest grossing horror movie of all time. So we included it, but it did not fare so well on the poll, Josh. No, what's interesting is the most recent and the oldest title are taking up the rear here. Hmm. So it came in last with only 2% and then getting only 3% was Paranormal Activity. With 4% of the vote is The Conjuring. Then came the category of Other and no single movie really dominated with a write-in there. The Orphanage received 6% of the vote. The Cabin in the Woods got 8% of the vote. The Babadook, 10%. Get Out, 13%. It follows 14%, really split evenly here. And then up at the top, The Witch received 17% of the vote, only 13 votes separating it from the winner. Let the right one in, which got 18%. So Tomas Alfredson, you made a movie that everyone thinks is probably the worst film of the year in The Snowman, but that's balanced out by winning this This poll. This will make him feel much better. I'm sure it will. Let the right one in. Great Swedish vampire movie. Now, our esteemed producer did wonder. I'm going to throw it out to listeners, and they can chime in on Twitter or email if they want to say that Sam is just wrong here, but he wondered if this movie 
because it's not that well-known of a film, though reviewed here on the show. Did some people confuse it with the remake, Let Me In, that was done by Hollywood a few years ago, which I didn't even see, actually. And my thought was, no, I don't think people are audience probably is mistaking the two movies. I don't know anyone who talks about Let Me In. I remember hearing that it was a decent movie, yeah. but it's never really talked about or a movie that in cinephile circles I hear getting discussed a lot. We certainly don't hear about it from listeners. So no, but I don't think so. It's not one that's regarded as a travesty of the original right. either. So it may have gotten bundled in with votes for the original. I'm sure it happened here or there. And, you know, with this tight of a it's race. so close. Who knows? Every vote matters. That's right. We did get taken to task by one commenter who was anonymous. They chose to use a fake email and a fake name, Josh, to deride us for not including Bone Tomahawk, which I haven't seen, in fairness, or Green Room, the great Jeremy Sunye film. And I was just all prepared to say, well, that's because Green Room's not a horror movie. And I think I do believe that. Mm -hmm. But I can definitely see the case for it. I know that if you look at IMDb, horror is one of the three genres that is listed there. Some people do consider it a horror film, so I get it, and I love the movie, but it didn't feel quite right for this poll. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think we're going to get to some more genre dicing and talk in some of the comments, yes. right? Horror seems to be one of those where people get very upset about what is and isn't horror. Yeah, and I do want to acknowledge that there was one movie and one director who was left out of this poll. I already did acknowledge this a week or so ago, but I want to do it again here as we're sharing the results. The House of the Devil, the Ty West movie. One I just forgot about when we were listing our options. I think it belongs here, but he also did The Innkeepers. And I know there are a lot of people out there who are big fans of his work. And I love The House of the Devil. And we just forgot it. So we apologize. Joel Edmiston remembered it. He says, the fact that The Witch and Let the Right One In are winning shows me that most of the people voting aren't hardcore genre fans. Take that. Joel says. Well, he's right. I like The Conjuring, It Follows, and Cabin in the Woods the most from this list, but ultimately it felt like a list made by people who don't have their ear to the ground about horror. I don't mean to come off pretentious. I just want to sing the song of a few underappreciated horror movies that don't take themselves as seriously as most of the ones on this list. Here's my alternative list. Your Next, Raw, Beyond the Gates, Kill List, Southbound, and here it is, The House of the Devil. So I don't think Joel is just being pretentious there at all, and I'm glad he's shedding some light on a few of those titles. I think it's probably a fair criticism of us, and we'll get this when people respond to our top five, that we aren't people who have our ear to the ground about horror. There are a ton of films in the genre that we simply haven't seen or didn't grow up repeatedly watching. So it's a fair criticism. And I do wonder if that applied to a lot of our voters as well. But I don't want to disparage anyone. Michael Loker in San Leandro, California, says this is a lot harder than expected, largely because much of the time what makes a successful genre film and what makes a film great aren't naturally complementary. Hmm. Fodder for a future show, Josh. A few of the movies on this list are flat out terrific, but do they earn their horror billing? The Witch is one of my favorite movies of the last few years, but it's spooky at best. I hold Let the Right One In in similar high esteem, but I don't think it offers a single honest scare. It's almost warm and fuzzy. The Cabin in the Woods and The Babadook are two very different movies that share a disqualifying trait. They exploit horror tropes and tricks, but really, they're only playing at the genre. They commandeer our familiarity with scary movies to stealthily advance ideas they're more interested in. Get Out has a foot in this arena as well. I'd rather consider the movies that primarily concern themselves with honest fright. The ones that level a nightmarish threat early on and make good, putting the protagonist and audience through a ringer that's never softened by a punchline. I admire The Conjuring, and it follows but The Orphanage. 
ticks all the boxes. It's well-crafted, it's entertaining, and it stares the genre down. I'll never set foot in an old Spanish orphanage. Bold statement there, Michael. Vote earned. So the orphanage was my pick as well, and similar thinking, though, not as well thought out or articulated as Michael just did it. But Let the Right One In maybe my favorite movie of all 10 of those options, but The Orphanage, close, and the one that scared me the most. Yeah, this this is why this is so tricky and gets into semantics, right? Because Let the Right One In has a vampire, but not horror? Oh, okay, The Witch right. has a witch <laughs> yes. and demons and baby murder, but that's not really horrible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Stephen Hauer said there's a lot of good stuff here. The Conjuring ushered in a return to slow burn tension building that also didn't skimp on intensity. Get Out was witty and incredibly smart. Cabin in the Woods was a balls-to-the-wall good time that exploded into one of the most insane climaxes of any horror movie I've ever seen. Valid. The Babadook managed to create an entirely new movie monster and imbue him with real terror and menace. But you know what? It still falls to The Witch, a film that absolutely shook me to my core. It isn't that the movie is about the battle between good and evil. It's about people who believe in good in a world where evil has already won the day. The chilling, terrifying nihilism of its vision left me reeling. But really, I'm voting for this one because I have the uncomfortable feeling that if I tried to click on any of the other options, I might feel the light touch of that gloved hand on my shoulder and hear that bone-chilling whisper, I will guide thy hand. Wow. I'm shivering now. Black Phillip. <laughs> Dave Enna adds, I pet sit for a couple of goats several times a year, and this movie made that job a lot more difficult. Goats are actually very nice, I think. Or are they whispering behind my back? Black Phillip. Yeah. Eddie Strait. I read the question, and without looking at the options, let the right one in popped into my head. I think it's easily the best film on the list, and I like all of the movies here. So why did I vote for It Follows? because it's the one I've thought about the most. I think the vagueness of the it and the forms it takes opens up the film in a way that lets you fill in the blank of whatever scares you the most. In Michael and Josh's review, they talked about the end of the film, how the kids' plan to defeat it is really bad, and how it should be bad because they don't really know what they're up against. What makes it follows work so well for me is the idea that once you understand the concept slash reality of death and that something will kill you, you can either live looking over your shoulder and grow increasingly paranoid, or you can try to make the most of the time you have left. That's a very optimistic reading of It Follows. And he's right, fundamentally. You can choose to look at the it of It Follows however you want. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like the zombies in Night of the Living Dead. They can represent whatever you'd like them to. And lots of people have lots of different theories on that. Jeremiah Dowlins wrote, such a tough choice. Each of these movies is fantastic and a testament to how great horror cinema has been over the last decade. There's a great diversity of voices and ideas, but I still chose The Babadook. Even as I recognize the elegance of Let the Right One In and spine-chilling terror of the orphanage. For me, Jennifer Kent's allegory is a brutal psychological exploration of shame and grief, unlike anything I've seen in horror movies. Her monster is a unique, personal boogeyman whose strength comes from being ignored and denied. As a result, the Babadook is intensely personal and doesn't lose its horror with repeat viewings. The scares don't come from traditional shocks, but from something deep and emotional. This film resonates and hurts. Mm. A few more here. Joshua Gall says, Let the right one in. Our winner managed to make me feel something horror films never do. This isn't just a movie about horror and pain. It's a movie about loneliness and what it's like to feel connected to someone for the first time. Even if that connection might result in you killing others to feed your beloved. But then again, no relationship is perfect. 
Jake Albrecht. He went the direction I did. Get Out might be the most important of these films, and Cabin in the Woods is the movie I enjoyed the most. But Paranormal Activity still gets my vote because months later, when my wife came on my side of the bed to grab a blanket off the floor in the middle of the night, I inadvertently shouted, what are you doing? I'd lose my mind. (laughs) That couldn't happen. No, that could not happen. We close with Brad West in Milwaukee, formerly Brad in Oconomowoc. Oh, he moved from Oconomowoc. He moved. This is a solid list. And if I could choose only one from the movies, it would be a tough toss-up between Paranormal Activity and It Follows. But ultimately, I had to choose other and give my vote to one of the most surprising movies of the last decade, 2013's Oculus. The advertising was terrible, and the one-sentence premise, it's about a haunted mirror, doesn't help. But hell, if this wasn't one of the most intense mind trips I've ever been taken on. I was immediately sold on writer-director Mike Flanagan, and I will automatically watch anything he makes now, which, by the way... He just directed an adaptation of the Stephen King book, Gerald's Game, starring Carla Gugino, that just got released on Netflix. So I'm glad we included that to get a voice in there for other, but also because it goes back a little bit to the very first listener comment we read and how we're not necessarily horror junkies. I did just listen to a Ringer podcast with Bill Simmons, where he interviewed Jason Blum from Blumhouse Films, and he's not a name I know because I don't watch a lot of these movies. It turns out he hasn't just produced Get Out and a few big hits, but pretty much every single horror film that has been released in the past five to ten years, he's been a part of or the driving force behind. It's a fascinating listen, and I heard so many horror movie titles that were brand new to me, but sounded pretty interesting. I heard them talk about many others that I just completely dismissed, that they made me feel bad about dismissing, and the name Mike Flanagan, first time I'd ever heard of it, came up in that podcast where Jason Blum was singing his praises as an incredibly talented filmmaker. So wanted to give a little bit more love there to Flanagan and movies like Oculus that we kind of skip here on the show, and maybe we shouldn't. We are duly chastised. Thank you, everyone who voted in the poll and who left us such great feedback. That does bring us to our new poll question. We're looking ahead a couple of weeks. There are so many great movies that we would love to discuss coming out. Agnes Varda's Faces Places, The Killing of a Sacred Deer from Yorgos Lanthimos, Todd Haynes' Wonderstruck, Lady Bird, Greta Gerwig's directing debut, and The Palm Door winning The Square from Ruben Oslin. All of these movies we hope to get to before the end of the year. Somehow, we're going to make time for them. But our poll question is going to focus on a pair of upcoming ensemble movies. Martin McDonough's Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, and Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express. They both come out here in Chicago on November 17th. Both have impressive ensemble casts, so we're giving you a death match. Members of only one of these ensembles is going to go on to act another day. Josh, their options are. From three billboards, we have Francis McDormand, Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, Peter Dinklage, and John Hawks. Hmm. They will be rumbling against the Orient Express's Judy Dench, Michelle Pfeiffer, Penelope Cruz, Kenneth Branagh is also in the cast, Derek Jacoby, Daisy Ridley, Leslie Odom Jr., another Hamilton yes. cast member there, original cast member. And who put this? Somebody put this guy <laughs> in parentheses. Johnny Depp is that just tagged tag on I'm the fine end with here. That. Huh. And Johnny Depp in poor, parentheses. Poor Johnny Depp. So Orient Express certainly has a larger ensemble, but does quantity trump quality here, Josh? Where are you voting? So my instinctual reaction is, well, Penelope Cruz is in Orient Express, so, so wins. Fair. Is that wrong? That's the same thing I did with Woody Harrelson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's hard to go against. Well, I don't know. So this is interesting. I mean, 
can you say that Sam Rockwell, Woody Harrelson, and John Hawks are all unique treasures that sort of do the same thing? Yes, I can. Penelope Cruz. <laughs> just to be different, just to be maybe the one vote that goes with Orient Express. I'm throwing down the gauntlet. And because I feel bad for Johnny Depp. Okay. Well, in parentheses, I am notoriously bad at predicting how these polls will come out, but usually with death matches. And I like this poll question, don't get me wrong, but usually with death matches, we want them to be kind of 50-50. We want them to be real nail biters. I feel like this is an 80-20, three billboards. You could be right. Okay. We'll see if I'm right in a couple of weeks here on the show. Vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave some feedback, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. A little bit of feedback on our last episode, Josh. We talked about Noah Baumbach's latest, The Meyerowitz Stories, a movie I like more than you, but we both, it seemed, recommended it. It's available. Yes, for sure. On Netflix, and it is playing in theaters as well. And I love that we get to call these clarifications. They're not so much corrections, but people clarifying points that came up during our conversation. I thought it was worth sharing. a new department. We have the Department of Clarification. It's next to the Corrections Department. (laughs) Aaron Crabtree says, Adam, I'm totally with you on the editing with this film. I did the same thing at the hug scene, had to rewind a few times just to see what was going on there. So I think what Josh was talking about with the picture quality was the fact that it was shot on 16 millimeter, giving it that really large grain. Personally, I love the aesthetic choice to shoot on 16. Whether or not it works for this movie is another discussion, I suppose. I think it was used to even greater effect in... Mother. Mother. So that makes sense. You touched on the graininess. I didn't see it certainly as a distraction much, but I definitely noticed it in the close-ups, that graininess coming through, and I thought it worked overall. Yeah, I think you definitely notice it in, in some scenes more than others. Griffin Filipich had another clarification. Hey, I love this show. I'm with Adam on Meyerowitz, more with Josh on While We're Young, but that's beside the point. He describes Stiller and Sandler as acting out of character near their confrontation at the end, more in service of screenplay needs, felt forced, etc. They are behaving oddly in those moments, but it's because they took those pills. Stiller's brought him down. Sandler's brought him up. Maybe you consider that construct a screenplay crutch on its own, but wanted to note that there is some explanation for their odd behavior. Anyway, great review. I did forget about that. They did take pills, both of them, not long before that encounter. It does make sense they'd act a little more unhinged. Yeah, I, I think Griffin's right there. I would say it's more of a crutch. I think, you know, and, and to be fair, Bombeck's done farce really well. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about it in Mistress America, that that climax. I think that's partly what he's going for here. But but maybe I guess farce works a little bit better if it's coming out of character than, you know, some sort of construct for me. Well, now we've gone from clarifications to corrections. You're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Going to have to talk to the other department. <laughs> So The Witch, Robert Eggers' directing debut, fared pretty well in our poll this week. Will it make either of our lists of the best horror debuts? Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. Top news story and informs 
informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Newt early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be... Every director has got to start somewhere, right, Josh? That was the sound of flying, man-eating fish in James Cameron's directing debut, 1981's Piranha Part 2, The Spawning. I can't laugh too hard because I had the original Piranha on my top five, what was it, uh, terrifying childhood movie moments? Yeah, Remember you did. We did that. And didn't Sales write that or something? Um, I swear John I Sales was involved. I think that's right. Joe Dante directed yeah. it and not his debut, though. Not Dante's directorial debut. Okay, so you debut. couldn't so go I with could it here. Go with you Piranha could have gone again. with Piranha Part 2, but neither of us have seen it, I'm guessing. No. No. Okay. I, when I become a James Cameron completist, I will see the spawning. <laughs> this week's top five is horror directing debuts inspired by Night of the Living Dead, which, of course, was George A. Romero's directing debut. And maybe we do need to clarify because there is the potential for confusion here. This is not a case where we're counting a horror debut as a movie where a filmmaker who otherwise never really made horror movies then made a horror movie at some point in their filmography. So it was their first one. That's not what this is. We're going with horror movies that also happen to be directed by first-time directors. The first movie they made was a great horror film. Did you have any other criteria or any other restrictions, omissions you want to touch on? Oh, oh boy, did I. I, Okay. (laughs) I made this a little harder for myself. And um, you're kind of lumping me in. I'd say I'm a a bigger horror fan than you painted me as. Um, Not an expert by any means. So many of these films, I could go through the Blumhouse films list. And I don't think you saw any of them. Uh, maybe. Well, possibly. The Paranormal Activity movies, you did I mean, see. I've seen, you know, almost all of those. And I think I included at least one of my top ten. Basically, if you look at my top ten list, there's mm-hmm. usually a horror title sometimes, too, on them. So fan of the genre, I would say. Not an expert. I wanted to make this a little harder for myself, uh, partly as a challenge and also partly to ensure – you know, variety on our lists, okay. as we talked about when we connected it to our poll options this week, we could have plucked from a number of them mm-hmm. right there. So what I did is I didn't want it just to be the best horror films that happened to be debuts, but ones where, okay, yes, directing was crucial to the success, but here's maybe the distinction hinted at a career to come. So I've set aside those where they weren't really followed up by much or we haven't really had a follow-up yet. So say Blair Witch, for example, which I love, I'd say for one thing, it's more a triumph almost of sound design as direction Mm -hmm. and certainly wasn't followed by a notable career for its two co-directors. There are a couple recent ones that I won't mention now because they're honorable mentions for me Mm -hmm. and I'm hoping they're on your list. they might come up on my list. So we'll see if it goes that way. I hope they are because we have had some good debuts Recently, Now, what does all this mean? My list is probably going to look ridiculous five years from now when some of these people go on to have great careers and make masterpieces, and I didn't put them on this, but what else is new? So we'll get to those maybe in my honorable mentions. All that talk about being as distinctive as I can, I'm going to start at number five with a title I'm pretty sure you do have on your list. It's J.A. Bayona with The Orphanage. 
Now, the true creative force of this movie, we all know, is Tomas, who I affectionately refer to as Baghead Boy because he haunts my dreams. <laughs> affectionately. I included him on my top five most terrifying characters list. We did that on episode 419. But I do think Bayona deserves uh, credit for knowing what images to anchor his ghost story on, including this little kid who wears this sack mask. And overall, I'd say Bayona, he uses atmosphere and insinuation over gore, not that you know, gore can't be employed just as effectively. We talked about it in Night of the Living Dead, but it's not what he emphasizes here. Now, we split strongly on The Impossible, Bayona's more reality-based follow-up about the 2004 tsunami in Thailand. I still am quite a fan of that film. I also liked his latest, A Monster Calls. That's an adaptation of a YA fantasy novel. I don't think it's quite as strong as his first two. So maybe Bayona should return to horror. I would like to see that. I think The Orphanage is a really great entry. Hugely impressive debut. It's my number five. Not returning to horror, though, because J.A. Bayona has decided instead to helm the fifth installment of the Jurassic Park series. So unless larger dinosaurs scare you or that series terrifies you, not going to happen with his next project. unfortunate. Okay, my top five. I don't have... The rigid criteria here, Josh, that you established. Wait a minute, I, do I want to know. I know. You? I know. I'm. I'm kind of is really bummed about it. Is this actually, a first in the I find history? it incredibly annoying. So let's just move on. <laughs> that you trump me here in terms of all the setup for me. It really comes down to I did have to kick out the movie that I thought was going to be my number one, hands down number one. And we touched on it recently when the director passed away, Toby Hooper, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He did have a previous film though, Eggshells. Which in 1969, I never heard, never of. even heard of. Technically, his debut, and you know, this is not Nam. There are rules, and I wanted to play by those rules, so I left the Texas Chainsaw Massacre off. And I am calling this the George A. Romero Memorial List. So, Night of the Living Dead is not going to show up, but it was not only appropriate. It's maybe the only time in the show's history where we actually are applying the word memorial with a list as it should be used, unfortunately, with his recent passing. So certainly giving love to Romero and Night of the Living Dead again here with this list. At number five, his name is Mr. Babadook. His name is Mr. Babadook, and this is his book. A rumbling sound, then three sharp knocks. Ba-ba-ba-duk-duk-duk. That's when you'll know he's around. You'll see him if you look. We might read another one tonight, eh? But you said I could choose. It was one of our poll options there for best horror movie of the past decade, and it was by far the most popular answer I saw on social media. In response to our question about horror debuts this week, I thought we reviewed this movie, but... I have no notes from my viewing of this movie and in looking at our archive. I don't think we did. I think we both just caught up with it for our top 10 list. And so it got some conversation there. Scott or Michael or both, maybe even you, it did end up making at least one top 10 list. Number nine for me. Okay. I do remember very vividly about the movie, how it portrays and how it embodies grief. And the storyline there, you hear the mother played wonderfully by Essie Davis, one of my favorite performances that year. She's got a son who is dealing with some issues. He can't sleep. He's thinking about imaginary monsters, and he brings home this pop-up book. Her husband 
his father has passed away in an accident, and she's basically just beaten down and exhausted by the process of trying to raise her son, Sam, and cope with that loss at the same time. So the movie really does literally embody grief, I think, in the character of Mr. Babadook. But then I'm also really drawn to what the movie, I think, suggests about the process of grieving. There's a line that the Babadook character says, I suppose, it's written in his book when she has thrown the book out and burned it, and then it shows up back on the doorstep, and it says something like, the more you deny me, the stronger I am, which I think is really the underlying message of the entire movie. So it gets that all right, Josh. It also made me want to take a nap, maybe more than any movie in recent memory. That exhaustion, the way it captures the mother's exhaustion and the way she's working really hard but also trying to raise this son is so strongly depicted that I think any viewer watching it feels it along with her. And I noticed as I was making my notes here with some of my other picks, this is something that's going to come up in my choices. The way good horror movies utilize the camera and editing and off-screen information and how they choose to show us information that otherwise wasn't known to us before. And I think of a great scene in The Babadook where the mom is in a coma, basically in her chair in the living room watching cartoons, barely watching cartoons on TV. Her son, I think, is lying down a few feet away from her. She then turns and sees him, and he's stabbed to death, bloody. She stands up horrified, and then the son, when we cut, is standing and is fine and is yelling, Mom. Kent cuts back to her, and she starts to look at her hand. She's kind of in a close-up, and the camera then follows her eyes, and we see that she's holding a huge knife. It's this really subtle movement, not showing us anything until the character sees it herself, but in a really terrifying way, it captures the worst imaginable fears of any parent beyond something that is terrifying in and of itself. Can I handle this? Can I handle being a parent? But then could I actually do something to hurt my own child? This movie taps into a lot of those really primal fears. Yeah. And how, you know, so many horror films tap into the parenthood fear in general. And I think this is one of the best of them. I'm already regretting my criteria because uh, I'm just looking for directors who went on to make Mm -hmm. a second or third film that was good as well. They kind of, they proved their first was great because this one is great. And and Kent has, she hasn't come out with another one. No, The Nightingale, according to IMDb, is supposed to come out in January 2019, set in 1825 Tasmania. And it has elements of revenge for murder, so could have a horror element to it as well, but listed here as a drama. And just because it's Jennifer Kent after the Babadook, I'm certainly all in. Absolutely. All right, number four, I'm going with Guillermo del Toro and Kronos. This was uh, his debut from 1993, and it's really a riff on the vampire genre. It's about this ancient device that provides eternal life, but at the cost of making its beneficiaries slash victims thirsty for blood. It's been a while since I've seen this. I think I was probably trying to catch up on Del Toro, maybe around the time of The Devil's Backbone or something like that. So my memory isn't too fresh. I did find a review from Jonathan Rosenbaum that I want to quote from. He reviewed it for the Chicago Reader. This highly personal take on the themes of immortality and vampirism, a first feature by Mexican filmmaker Guillermo del Toro, may not be your cup of tea, but you have to admire the style, sincerity, and overall sense of craft, even if you don't fancy the comic book gore. If this sounds a mite formulaic, del Toro incorporates enough dark camera poetry 
an authentic feeling, including intense familial affection, to make you periodically forget it. One of his conclusions, incidentally, is that immortality isn't all it's cracked up to be. Now, we know from Del Toro's other movies that dark camera poetry, that, that's a great phrase for what he does, certainly authentic feeling as well. And that last bit about immortality not being all that it's cracked up to be, that's a sense of tragedy that goes back in the monster genre, you know, all the way to the universal horror pictures of the 30s. So something like Dracula or Frankenstein. And certainly Del Toro is a student of those films. I think this is a notion that informs many of Del Toro's movies, including this creepy debut. Well, I'm a fan of a lot of his films, but I have not seen that debut. Sounds like a great pick, though, one I certainly need to see. My number four is one I think you need to to see Josh, and it's a movie I just caught up with earlier this year in preparation for my interview with Anna Lily Amarpour. She has a new movie called The Bad Batch Out. I actually like her debut film, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, better from 2014. A lot of listeners wrote in at the time, really upset with us that we didn't see this film at the time and that we didn't consider it for the golden brick because it seemed like an obvious choice, and now after having finally seen it, I completely get it. I actually want to read from a listener who sent us an email at the time, because not only does she sum up the plot description pretty well here for a movie that a lot of people listening may not be familiar with, she also really does get at what makes the film special. Suzanne Field in San Francisco, California, says, Dusty Taft, California, stands in for the fictional town of Bad City, a ghost town whose residents favor retro influences. Here we find a petite skateboarding riding vampire, known only as The Girl, the breathtaking Sheila Vand, doling out moral justice. Dressed in a long, chotter-like veil, which in the dead of night gives her a haunting, specter-esque silhouette, or one could argue it's superhero cape. Maybe I should have saved her, Josh, for next week's top five. While revealing a less-than-terrifying Breton-striped top beneath, a nod to French New Wave offers one of the most indelible images of the year. The girl's underground apartment more closely resembles a teenager's bedroom than vamp lair, and we see her shed her gloomy getup to dance around Audrey Horn style to 80s and 80s-inspired pop. The girl falls for the James Dean channeling amateur drug dealer Arash, and they come tentatively together during a hypnotic scene of romantic yearning and hunger. I love how the highly stylized look of the film does nothing to undercut the girl's real menace to Bad City. She is terrifying. In a chilling scene, she terrorizes a child into being a good boy and proceeds to steal the aforementioned skateboard. There's also a disturbing scene where she stalks and feeds on a local thug after silently and creepily wandering through his lavish apartment full of ill-gotten wares. The high-contrast black-and-white cinematography is spellbinding and the soundtrack is perfection. Although Amarpour's story may drift because of slight plot and some less-than-tight editing, you can tell she is a formidable filmmaker and one to watch. A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night is well-crafted, dreamlike and wholly original. Wow, Suzanne really did nail this movie and managed to get in there the phrase ill-gotten wares. And it sounded fantastic. (laughs) So thank you so much, Suzanne. One of the things we talked about in my conversation with Amarpour is the sense that we see in both of the main characters, the heroines of her stories, not so much that they're looking for forgiveness that a lot of characters in a more traditional Hollywood movie, a more conventional film would be looking for. And by the end, they'd maybe get it or they would actually become sort of better people by the end of the movie. Here, it's this notion of reconciliation. She has to just come to terms with who she is, kind of accepting the badness within herself and yet still being able to make genuine sort of touching, compassionate connections with other creatures. And we could debate how scary it is, whether or not it's a horror movie, kind of like Let the Right One In. I'd say this one is even less graphic from what I remember than that Tomas Alfredson film. 
but she's definitely a vampire. And as Suzanne said, she is at times terrifying, which is good enough for me. Well, I think you're safer going with The Girl Walks Home Alone at Night as horror is my number three pick. Oh, I can't wait. Louise Bunuel, Unshen Nandalu. Mm. Now, I finally saw this in full for the first time last year as part of our Bunuel Marathon. And the fact that it's a short, first of all, and that Bunuel didn't go on to work specifically in horror, those facts are both trumped by this. It's absolutely terrifying. For me, <laughs> one of the essential works of disturbing cinema, and I'm not just talking about the razor to the eyeball. For me, it was the entire flow of the thing, this this dream rhythm that Bunuel creates, uh, though it's it's more appropriate really to talk about this as a nightmare rhythm. It's specifically a nightmare rhythm. Think about this couple seconds montage that we talked about, this close-up of ants crawling out of a hole in the palm of a hand, then cut to someone's hairy armpit, cut to a sea urchin, cut to a severed hand on a sidewalk. All of that disturbing in various levels on their own, but then randomly associated. You know, that's the key here is the randomness to this. It it gives them an eeriness that is so familiar, even though these may be things that you've never envisioned or imagined on your own, what's familiar is that sense you have when you wake up in the middle of the night from a nightmare and and all you can wonder is, what's wrong with me that I just dreamt that? Hmm. And you're left with that feeling. That's what what watching Unshen Andalou leaves you with. And that's horrible. It is. I think you articulated it well. I can't argue with it. I want to argue with it. But I'm sure I'm sure I'll get complaints. Yeah, probably. We know how litigious the horror community is, but. (laughs) Well, there really is maybe no more terrifying image than that razor blade. Well, yeah. In all of cinema, the razor blade, the eyeball. So and the the fact that, you know, being so familiar with it, it still works on you when you watch it again and again. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's insidious. Okay, so a much more boring pick here. My number three, I am going with. Your beloved The Blair Witch Project, directed by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. And I think for me, I had this in mind because we were talking about Night of the Living Dead and the way it created a genre. Or it took material that already existed in film and then put a different spin on it. And certainly there were found footage movies or found footage was incorporated into movies before The Blair Witch Project. But this really was the movie that popularized it. Of the ones I've seen anyway, did it the best. And did it so well. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day. It came up. You weren't a total idiot if at the time you bought into some of the mythology surrounding this movie pre-release and then post-release. There was an authenticity to the movie that I remember really buying into. I went back and looked at our top five scariest moments from episode 133 on the show. And then we revisited it, I think, later on the show, or maybe it was me and Maddie. But I had on that first episode the end scene of the Blair Witch Project. And I've always had it in my head how terrifying that was. And then I was reading a description of it today, and it's basically a guy standing in a corner facing a wall. But it's all how it's about That's the part, Josh, that apparently terrifies me to no end. And I'm wondering, why is that scary exactly? But you know what? I can immediately put myself back in the headspace of watching that scene. And... As I touched on with the Babadook, it's all about how information is revealed, the way the camera shows it, the way the characters discover the information, and then how we discover it after that. And I just realized how easily terrified I am of things that are simply creepy and nothing more, like being in the dark in a basement and someone standing there. 
something unexpected about it, something unusual about the behavior, that alone can be enough to unnerve me that I can remember that scene so well and that it can still haunt me to this day. Now, for some reason, and I don't know why they would have done this, but Entertainment Weekly just did this week an untold stories on this movie and had kind of five behind-the-scenes notes. And I remember hearing some of this stuff at the time, but it's just fascinating to think about how the filmmakers left notes inside film canisters to have the actors basically discover this information and then have to play off of it. And that led to this kind of authenticity of these characters lost in the woods, coming across new information, trying to make sense of it all. But I love the magic of cinema. One of the actors says in this piece that they come across the stick men in the trees. And I remember watching the movie and finding that scary as hell, finding that really creepy. And they came across those sticks and were like, well, okay, a bunch of kids just made some really lame stick men, and then they had to react to it. But that is the magic of yeah. cinema. They reacted yet in the sound design and everything else with that movie, and it adds up to a really good movie and a really scary one. What? What kind of stuff? What? No way. All over the place. Holy! Come up here quick! I need to use the CP. Yo, there's all sorts of up here, man. This is crazy. Please, I just I gotta get this on 16. I have no idea. Yeah, I mean, it's a landmark, as you said, for the reasons you described, the influence it had. I think it's a formal masterpiece uh, for just the way it's using the basics of cinema to get these reactions from us. And yeah, if not for these restrictions I put on myself. I mean, it's my number two. We were asked by, I think it was another podcast a year or two ago to rank our horror films. It's my number two horror film of all time. So really glad it's on your list. So I think I have this right. $60,000 to make worldwide. $248 million. I mean, that's like blowing Night of the Living Dead out of the water. Yeah, way out of the water. And Myrick and Sanchez, they wouldn't make your list because they don't really fit that criteria. They haven't gone on to do anything, certainly matching the quality or the esteem of the Blair Witch Project. But they may, according to what I saw today, revisit their most beloved work and dig into some kind of prequel or something that gets into that mythology. And I love this movie enough that I think I'd be on board with that. So I actually thought Blair Witch, the the most recent one, Yeah, you was thought that okay. was okay. Yeah, it was okay. Now, not so much Book, Book of, of Shadows. Book of Shadows. No. <laughs> we don't, Horrible. We don't want to talk Just about that. Just a terrible, terrible movie. Okay, so at number two, nothing new or exciting. You're probably right to make it the George Romero memorial list. I had to get it on here for the record, though, and I put it at number two. Romero, of course, he did go on to have a rich career. Most of that was revisiting the zombie genre that he helped create. I think I've seen all but one of those, and Night of the Living Dead remains my favorite. It's interesting how we praise so much of the subtlety, even though there's a lot of contemporary resonance to Night of the Living Dead. I think he gets more explicit in his social commentary as his career goes on. But still, some good zombie films that he went on to make. And I haven't seen these, but know that people hold them in high esteem, The Crazies and also Creep Show. So those are ones that at some point I'm going to have to get to. But for now, With Night of the Living Dead, I'm putting George A. Romero at number two for this list. Okay, I'm certainly in agreement there, and we are 
in agreement as well on my number two pick. It was your number five, The Orphanage. It was my vote in that poll question from a few weeks back. I had it as my number two 21st century horror movie when we did that top five, and I did have it as my number one scariest scene when we revisited the original 2006 list. That scene, one, two, three, knock on the wall. The mother trying to communicate with the spirits of children she was in the orphanage with. Great use of sound here again to completely unnerve you. But like Blair Witch, it's just some kids appearing and standing there. I hate to demystify it for anyone who hasn't seen this scene. But, but it's true, though. What's with the still That's standing? what I'm saying. That's what I'm getting at. Move. This is what it made me think about doing Move this list. Quit creeping me out. Seeing something unexpected. Even if it's completely expected, that's the whole goal of her playing this game. We expect the kids to show up at some point. It is a horror movie, after all. The camera pans multiple times to the back of the room. She turns her head to look and see if the kids are there. They aren't like four times. You know, inevitably, <laughs> one is going to show up. And like the zombies in Night of the Living Dead, after one shows up, maybe the next time it's going to be four. Maybe the next time it's going to be seven or ten. And yet, when it actually happens... I watched the scene again today in broad daylight. Why did, why did you do that to yourself? I just, I had to remind myself of the scene and it still sent shivers up and down my body. Now, in contrast to you, I disliked the impossible so much that I didn't bother to see a monster calls. And I probably won't see the fifth Jurassic Park movie. So as far as I'm concerned, he's made one masterpiece and that's good <laughs> enough for me. I love the orphanage. Un, dos, tres, toca la pared. Un, dos, tres, toca la pared. Un, dos, tres. It's so disturbing, and there's something, yeah, what is it about that stillness, about the, it, it's almost like it's daring you to not be scared. Right. And not working too hard to scare yeah. you yeah. And, and knowing ahead of time that you're already scared. Yeah. I, I don't know. That movie messes <laughs> you up. All right. Number one is David Lynch and Eraserhead. Mm. And I know people are going to say not horror, but really if you – okay. So if Lynch didn't go on to be Lynch, which essentially means that he created a genre unto itself, right, That that is inextricably linked – with him. If you mm-hmm. just watched Eraserhead in a vacuum, it's absolutely horror. I mean, psychological horror, maybe no, a subgenre, right. um, but still horror. And it, it, this ties back to the Babadook. Um, this, it's a surreal, nightmarish, cinematic panic attack about the prospect of having children. And you can extrapolate from that and say, well, maybe more broadly, it's about the threat of domesticity. Certainly that is there too. But the, the, the terrible specifics are about children in childbirth. I mean, the plot, mm-hmm. such as it is, it, it follows Jack Nance's bewildered father-to-be. His girlfriend gives birth to something, looks like maybe an in utero E.T. The new family moves <laughs> into his cramped one-bedroom apartment, and it's not bliss from there. I think what's astonishing to me about Eraserhead, and, and this is why it goes back to my criteria at the top, why I put it at number one, is the confidence Lynch has in his imagery right from the start, mm-hmm. no matter how freakish it becomes. Uh, perhaps here is where I should mention that in this movie, there's a nightclub where worm fetuses drop from the ceiling onto the stage. <laughs> Feti? Perhaps, <laughs> perhaps. And then they're stomped on by a disfigured dancer. This is what's going on in Eraserhead. 
And all, all you can say is Lynch went for it right from the start. He was right to do so. Uh, he made a masterpiece and just further explored throughout his career these sorts of um, impulses, would you call them? I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. What, just this surreal, crazed, psychological horror that's most explicitly stated probably here at the start with Eraserhead. Mm. A great choice, one I certainly considered, and a movie we discussed on the release of its Blu-ray not too long ago, episode yeah. 506. Yeah, I was we'll link say two to years, it maybe. in our show notes. Now I'm trying to remember, was that that had to be a blind cow or a blind spotting? I had never seen it. I don't think I had either. Yeah, I think in it was a blind entirety. spotting review. Yeah, so yeah. if you want to hear us try to process <laughs> Eraserhead on one viewing, probably the night before we talked about it, you can hear that and we will link to that in our show notes at filmspotting.net for this episode. Okay, my number one horror directing debut, also a horror directing finale, the one and only film made by this I director. Know where you're going. And this is my choice that people can quibble with and take issue and deride and say, isn't really a horror movie. It is The Night of the Hunter, the director, Charles Lawton, the film from 1955. Now, Charles Lawton had so little success with this movie, not a critical success at the time, and definitely not a box office success. He died seven years after it came out in 1962, never did direct another movie. But this is the movie we all know, Robert Mitchum, the preacher who travels from town to town. He's seeking out a bag of, I think it's $10,000 that someone he used to bunk with in prison mentioned in his sleep just might be on his estate. And he's got his widowed wife and his two young children. And he comes along to try to get this money and does get romantically involved with the widow Shelley Winters. And then it's really a battle between him and the son to try to track down this money. The son is on to him from a fairly early stage. All right, boy, where's the money? In the cellar. Buried under stone on the floor. It'll go hard if I find your lion, boy. I'm not lying. Go look for yourself. All right. Come along. What? Go ahead of me. The both of you. Down those stairs. Now, I said people are going to quibble with it being a horror movie. And that's fair. It doesn't scare me. There are not moments in it that scare me on any level that's like the Blair Witch Project or the Babadook or the Orphanage. But the Criterion Collection says it's truly a standalone masterwork, a horror movie with qualities of a grim fairy tale. Roger Ebert says many movie lovers know by heart the Reverend's famous explanation to the wide-eyed boy. Ah, little lad, you're staring at my fingers. Would you like me to tell you the little story of right hand, left hand? And the scene where the Reverend stands at the top of the stairs and calls down to the boy and his sister has become the model for a hundred other horror scenes. And I did do a Google search it comes up on plenty of lists of the best horror films ever, so there are many others anyway who are as similarly misguided as me. Now, I do say a fair amount more about this movie in another podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes as well. There's a local show here called Alcoholywood, which I think you've been on as well, Josh. No, I have not. Okay, you haven't done you haven't had the pleasure yet. yet. No. Where you go over and you watch a movie, then you talk about it, but they put together a cocktail customized to the movie and a drinking game that goes along with the film. And we talked about Night of the Hunter. One of the things that does come up in that episode, I compare Mitchum's Harry Powell to Anton Chigurh, which No Country for Old Men, not exactly a horror movie, but Chigurh and Harry Powell are almost supernatural 
presences. They are not only some of the best villains in movie history, they're among the best monsters, I think, in movie history. He moves like Shigur, very slow and steady, never in a hurry. And he does live by a code. He's not just an indiscriminate serial killer. There are principles that guide him that he believes are righteous. And I think that is what really makes him the scariest. And guess what? There's that standing and appearing angle again, even with him. There's a scene that always reminded me a bit of William Friedkin's The Exorcist, the famous shot of Father Marin showing up outside and the the glow almost coming from the bedroom window down on him by the light pole. That first time we see Mitchum show up outside the boy's window. He's not there, and then he's there outside. The boy hears the singing first and then looks out, and there he is, the reverend, just standing there. And the fact that he's just standing there still and singing— that's enough. That's the scariest moment for me, maybe, in that entire film. So you don't you don't need Ebert. You don't need Criterion Collection to back you up. I just checked LarsonOnFilm.com, yeah. where, where I do categorize by genre. It's under horror. It's under horror. You're good. Okay, well, I'm done. You're fine. <laughs> good to know. Those are our top five horror directing debuts. Josh, honorable mentions. So, yeah, the ones that are on your list that I've seen, also honorable mentions for me, just for silly reasons I set aside, I think... Ones that haven't been mentioned and I would say are maybe the the too soon for me would be Raw. Earlier in the show came up, Julia Ducourneau's film from this year and also Jordan Peele's Get Out. Good chance one, if not both of those, are going to be on my top 10 list at the end of this year. Talked about them a lot already and we'll probably be talking about them some more. Okay, so I'm with you on Get Out just seemed too soon. David Lynch's Eraserhead thought about but just wasn't completely sure what to do with. And then two movies that did come up in that poll question, and I know a lot of people love, I have a lot of respect for them, so I'm going to at least acknowledge them here, The Cabin in the Woods from Drew Goddard and Robert Eggers' The Witch. I hate to use this word, but I guess I would say I find them both to be a little bit overrated, but I understand why people are drawn to both movies as much as they are, and they deserve a nod here. Yeah, I should have mentioned The Witch. That's an honorable mention for me, too. And here's one that I loved. Someone suggested on Twitter, didn't quite have the guts to go with, but Fintan McGrath said, Henry Selleck with The Nightmare Before Christmas. Love that movie, and it's uh, got horror elements. Is it a holiday movie or a Halloween movie? Yeah, The eternal question with that. The other films that I did give a lot of consideration to, The Loved Ones from director Sean Byrne, an Australian horror film, The Evil Dead. The original Evil Dead. Yeah, I was wondering if you might. I put like that it much more there. than you. The Sam Raimi movie, and then our friend, local critic Mark Dusick, said on Twitter, "What about Bill Paxton's directing debut, Frailty?" See, Frailty, I have to watch again because I know there's a lot of love for it, and initially. I wasn't that big on it. So I liked it when it came out. I remember writing a review of it. Didn't rave about it, but I liked the movie. It is one of those films that I think is really rewatchable. And I know that because not too long before Bill Paxton passed away, just earlier this year or whenever that was, I came across it one night late on TV about a quarter of the way in. I stayed to the very end of the film. I was absolutely hooked by it again. So felt like it was deserving of a mention here. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That's where you can also find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. And you can also vote in the current film spotting poll. We have an all-star ensemble death match going on. It's the cast of three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri versus the cast of Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express. If you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. If you want some more raw talk, 
They're doing Raw on SVU this yeah. week. You can find both of those in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release, speaking of horror movies that we will probably skip and shouldn't, Jigsaw, bodies turning up around the city, each having met a uniquely gruesome demise. As the investigation proceeds, evidence points to one suspect, the man known as Jigsaw. Get this, Josh, who's been dead for 10 years. Dun, dun, dun. Suburbicon, also out. George Clooney and the Cone brothers on that script. Thank you for your service. A group of U.S. soldiers returning from Iraq struggles to integrate back into family and civilian life. Miles Teller stars there. Now, how about these titles in limited release, all opening in Chicago? Faces Places, Agnes Varda, Killing of a Sacred Deer, Yorgos Lanthimos, and Wonderstruck, the latest from Todd Haynes. Are we going to talk about those films on this show at some point over the next few months? Oh, yeah. Almost sure. certainly. Yeah. And Are we going to review them next week? I think there's a chance no. one of us okay. will get to some of these. <laughs> Let's promise that. We're just faces, hedging our bets. Faces Places, yeah, I think we will we both be see able that. to check out. Let's and I not would promise. love to give it a couple minutes. Let's not promise. I think we're going to try to go as a family to Wonderstruck. Really? Just because— Family-friendly? Oh, yeah. The book, which I, I don't know if you can categorize as YA, or but beloved in our house. Oh. So I'm going to try to do a quick read of it before— <laughs> before the movie comes out. But yeah, so we're going to try to make a family trip out of that. We'll see if we can pull it off. How are you going to fit in reading the novelization of Thor Ragnarok before seeing that? Ragnarok! Well, you got the title right anyway. It It was close. It was close to Scandinavian. Josh, we are going to talk about Thor next week on the show and share our top five superhero costumes. You will not want to miss that. Do you have a favorite superhero costume? Because who doesn't? Right. Send us an MP3 or leave us a short voicemail and we may use it on next week's show. 312-264-0744. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Can't wait to hear what their favorite superhero costumes are. <laughs> I think we have to wear them to the studio next. Week. Oh, yeah. Planning on it. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Jeremy, the Flash. I'm going with the Flash. OK. He is fast when he updates things mm-hmm. on our website. Oh, yeah. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths, we already call her Wonder Woman, and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Justice League? I love it. Special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. Uh, you don't got one, do you? <laughs> I, was gonna, I blanked on the Marvel. What do you call the Marvel? The, the Marvel Cinematic the Universe? Oh, gracious. the Avengers. Okay. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you like what you heard on this show, please give us a rating. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Both of those will help us reach new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Green Lantern. Thanks for listening. <laughs> this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So Sarah and I found a show to watch together. And it is. I've been neglecting my film spotting homework because I've been watching Mindhunter on Netflix. She's into it? Oh, she's way into it. Okay. She's she's way into any... Remember, well, you don't remember. You weren't there. It was Sam who was with us. But, you know, she went and saw Gone Girl with me, and she likes any TV show that's about murder, spouses trying to get away with murdering someone. Hmm. That's really interesting. I've noticed a pattern. <laughs> She's really into detective stuff for whatever reason. And so I knew this is one that 
she'd probably get behind. And I just saw a little bit about it on Twitter and stuff. I knew Fincher was involved. He directed a couple of the episodes. He's an executive producer, I think, of it. They've had some really good directors, too. I'm kind of looking this up here, but I think that the director of the... I could be wrong, but the director of the Amy documentary, which I was such a big Mm -hmm. fan of, yeah, and Senna, Asif Asif Kapadia, or Kapadia, he directed one of the Hmm. episodes. I think it's 10 episodes in the series, and... We have made it through seven. And if I had it my way, if it wasn't for her falling asleep much more easily than me, I would have watched all 10 episodes in one or two sittings because so it's one of those it, that's so but, addictive. But not enough to stay awake. She's really into it, but run. she needs to do maybe one or two at a time. And I would yeah. do well, What are they, five like or six. 45 minutes? Yeah, there was one actually that was only 36, but they're usually between 45 and about that's 55. A it's a bit of a commitment. But Jonathan Groff, who... Everyone knows from Hamilton. Mm-hmm. He was King George. He's the lead in it, I suppose. Kind of an kind of an ensemble and kind of a dual lead, but he's the main character in it, really. And you know, I don't know if you know anything about it, but it's it's based on a true story, a real FBI agent. It's back in the. I can't believe I've watched seven episodes and now I'm hesitating. It's in the 70s, and okay. they're basically the first people really investigating the minds of serial killers Mm -hmm. and trying to actually put together psychological profiles and dealing with a world that is changing and they're trying to understand it and understand the criminal mind. And yeah, I'm way into it. Oh, it sounds like if it was that or the snowman in terms of serial killers, you made the right choice. (laughs) And so we got some more culture this week. I don't know what you were up to, but we went and saw another play at Steppenwolf, went out to dinner, had a little date night. Then we went to see a play at Steppenwolf. It's the Rembrandt. So I know it's about, like Rembrandt's going to show up as a character in mm-hmm. it. I know. I know it's about art. So of course I'm in. And then I'm really in because it's John Mahoney is in it, oh, who nice. I've never seen here, but he's one of those Chicago theater yeah. guys. I think he's been a longtime member of Steppenwolf. And it's really good. Which I was, was a huge in? fan of it. It was the, same the one upstairs one. No, okay. it was the upstairs one, which I don't think I've ever been in before. But it's it's an ensemble of, I think, only five actors. And the gist of it is this. It opens at an art museum. There's a security guard. Francis Guinan is the actor who plays the security guard. There's a new guard. And the actor, I can't believe I don't have his name in front of me. It's Ty something. Really good. Phenomenal. He's a new security guard there. Then there's a, a woman in her early 20s, maybe, who comes in to paint a copy of this Rembrandt painting. There's the head security guard who's a minor character. And John Mahoney doesn't appear in the first segment or the second segment. But so it's set in the present day and it's basically they, they get talking about this, this painting and then something happens and it shifts and we're now back in the time of Rembrandt and Guinan is playing Rembrandt and the young security guard is playing his son and the woman is playing his muse, his, his wife, I think, actually, maybe they're married. And then it goes from that back to the time of Homer and John Mahoney shows up and he plays Homer because in the Rembrandt painting, Homer is depicted. So it's all connected. All right. It's all connected. It ends up in the present day again and the characters shift and play different people there. Very much, very much an obvious play about death and a play about art, also a play specifically about theater without them ever saying it because there's, there's a point in it where the Homer character, John Mahoney is really talking to the audience and it's all about this. What he's saying is he's basically bemoaning 
the idea of his work being written down and not being part mm-hmm. of an oral tradition because it should be part of this experience that's shared and communal. Mm-hmm. And it's all about smelling the person next to you and seeing their faces and hearing their reactions. Like you're sitting in a theater yeah. having that same experience with him. And, and he, he does as a character acknowledge you at one point, maybe actually a couple times he does. So I, I loved it. It, it. I thought it was, I thought it was really to use a really overused term profound and it also gave me what I think is a really great idea for a documentary I'd want to make. But okay. I'm not going to say that here, even in hot mics, Josh, because it's potentially too embarrassing. And I don't want anyone to steal it. But I'll tell you off air. Brand new idea? Oh, yeah. Or something? Okay. Oh, yeah. Because it's actually tied to this play. Okay. So I don't think any documentaries have been made connected to it. I thought we were your Steppenwolf people. How, how come you didn't invite us? I know. Us? I thought about it. We, we I don't know why. Last... Yeah, I don't know why sure. either. Okay. I, I even thought about it one time. I'm like, why didn't we invite Josh and Debbie? We usually do this. We go out to dinner. Yeah. We see a play. And I just assumed you were too busy. All right. Well, whatever. Weren't you traveling, actually? We just did a day trip. Just We try to get to Starved Rock. Uh, you know, in the fall. Wore your film spotting t-shirt. That's right. <laughs> Looking good. Uh-huh. It, it, that's a nice t-shirt. I, I mean, I'm I pretty, agree. I'm pretty, no, but I'm picky. Like promotional t-shirts can be awful. I think it's a really well-made shirt. Yeah, I it agree. Is. Soft, comfortable, fits <laughs> nice. And and you recommend it for hiking. Apparently. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We just did the day because this has been, um, B's dream is to take the dog on vacation, which sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we finally said, tell you what. It's an hour and 20-minute drive. Usually we go there and we stay a night or two because there's a couple parks around there you can go hiking in. And we said, let's just go there for the day, take the dog, we'll go hiking with the dog, and we can manage that, right? And we'll get home the same night. The dog did great. I thought possibly we were pushing it with her. Like this did, might be – Did she did, eat a rug? No, no rugs were eaten. No. Wow. And more importantly, the likelihood here was that plants and trees would be randomly eaten for sure. no apparent reason. Mm-hmm. That didn't even happen. She, we, we did like seven point something miles uh, across the whole day, and she did great. This, this does not sound like fun. No, no I, part of this, this sounds is, like fun. This is why we did not invite you <laughs> to Starved Rock. <laughs> yeah. But what Debbie and I are catching up on is something I knew I would get to it, and I knew the day I got to it, I would kick myself for waiting so long. Okay. Veep. I mean, I don't know yeah. how many seasons it's in. We're just starting three It's got to be five or six. Because we're just racing through the So things. I've never watched it religiously, but I you would saw check a little bit in. of it? Oh, yeah. I watched probably oh. – there was a time where I watched at least four or five episodes in a row, but I've never been a religious watcher of it, even as I've recognized the brilliance of it. She, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, yeah. is – and I know in Enough Said, we both were nuts for her, and the whole yeah. I've seen her film, um, and obviously from Seinfeld. This is like – she's just – it's a tour de force. I mean, yeah. so funny, so vile. Just it, people talk about the Seinfeld characters being oh, yeah. completely unlikable no. and everyone here is reprehensible. It's unreal. And that, like the filthiness of how they talk to each other. I just, you know, I, any kid who's interested in politics at all, mm-hmm. I, stay away, right? Not, not because right. of the extreme content, but because <laughs> it will kill your soul for wanting to be anywhere near DC. Yeah. But they're so funny. And Tony Hale is great in it. Yeah, Timothy Simons is Jonah. He's, oh, he's a great follow on Twitter if you don't follow him. hooked. So I don't know how long it's going to take. Uh, you know, on Amazon, they try to hook you, right? The first two seasons are part of Prime and then you got to pay for them. But they're on Netflix DVD. So I got those coming. And I think I actually, I've never really thought about it, but it's one of those things, as you know, I'm I'm not a fan of, or I, I can be, of course, there's some 
films and plays and things. I love that revel in this and Veep does. But that awkwardness, the, yeah. the, there's so much discomfort that I respect the hell out of it. But it's actually in a way almost hard for me to watch because no, I, I can't believe how rude they are to each other, yeah. you know? Yeah, I get that. And, and I think what makes it work is, again, her just on the top of it all where at once she's completely self-eviscerating mm-hmm. and then we'll have these moments where – because after the first few episodes, I'm like, you know, it might be a little better if anyone was competent, right? Like you <laughs> right. could believe – Just one person. But, but then she'll get these moments where it's like, okay, this is someone who has command of a room and knows what to say. Mm-hmm. But but there's just like and then such that's, narcissism. And that's undercut. Yeah, yeah. There's such narcissism underneath that. For sure. It's Yeah, it's brilliant. We love it. Film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.